0: it looks like we've got a nice house for this evening my name is jeff champlin i'm a member of saint john's church and it's my honor to welcome all of us those here and those of us coming in um to our first mind stretchers program this is a community lecture program that i think our the mother of us all, Pat Clark, is not with us this evening, but I think it's about five years old in this format and goes back six years. Um, and this is the first time that we've done it uh, just virtually. So this is a new experience for us. Um, as always, we want to thank Kenneth Moon, who set up the Zoom meeting and is managing the coordination with Uh, Facebook Live, those of you who are on Facebook Live. The main thing, however, is to introduce our speaker, who is Lisa Childs. You can see her there. She's Assistant Vice President for Technology Commercialization and a patent attorney at the Division of Agriculture in the University of Arkansas. Just in case life was dull, she also has her PhD, I discovered this evening in genetics. And she is now a graduate student in the history department and a published historian. Uh, Patrick Williams, who is a professor there, recommended her to us for this program. When we started the program, we wanted to get the stories not told in American history and the stories that are especially important in terms of the folks who have been marginalized. And reconstruction is one of those important stories. What Lisa will do for us this evening is to help us with an overview, but also to kind of focus in on reconstruction in Arkansas and especially reconstruction in Sebastian County. Um, We're going to be doing this virtually. As you know, all of you are muted. That's so that we don't have background noise inflicting all around the presentation. Uh, You can see Jennifer Childs uh, is our moderator. Wave, Jennifer. Right, Jennifer Childs is our moderator. And what we'd encourage you to do, Lisa is going to speak for about 50 minutes. And what we'd encourage you to do is to use the chat feature to flag questions to her. Um, And you can use chat both in Facebook and through Zoom. And then she'll sort of field the questions and relay them to Lisa. So I'm hoping we can have a good conversation uh, following up on Lisa's presentation. And with that, Lisa, I would like to hand it to you. Thank you. Let's get the slides up. And let's see, how do we do it? Those of us who are stupid, how do we do it? So we're seeing only this, there we go. You might, everybody want to put yourself on speaker view. And there's Lisa's slide. Good. All right.
1: So thanks so much, Jeff, for the invitation. It sure did take us a while to get here since we started out thinking we were going to meet on St. Patrick's Day. Um, as, As Jeff said, I am a historian. Most of my work has focused on 19th century US history, especially here in Arkansas because it's somewhat relevant to some of the things I'm gonna say. I was raised Methodist, but I am now a member of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Fayetteville. Um, And also my job sounds complicated. And what I do is I help my team find ways for our researchers' inventions to be put to good use. Obviously, I'm not speaking for my employer tonight. So in preparing for this evening, I've been asking friends and relatives what they know about reconstruction. I've been hearing a variety of responses. My husband said it was something about carpetbaggers. Another friend said it was a long time after the Civil War and maybe to punish the South. One friend actually refused to answer. I've had several people say they don't know what it's about. I'll tell you right now that we're only really gonna touch on it. Patrick Williams, who was your original speaker spends two and a half weeks on it in his Arkansas history class. Yale's David Blight teaches a semester class on Civil War and Reconstruction. He spent six of his 27 lectures on Reconstruction. This textbook, Arkansas, A Concise History, devotes a full chapter out of 15 on Reconstruction. But what is Reconstruction? Reconstruction was intended to be a way to bring back the seceded states into the Union without undoing emancipation. It was to rebuild or reconstruct the Union It began as early as 1863 in Louisiana and Arkansas when Union troops regained control of regions within those states. It ended in 1877 with the inauguration of Rutherford B. Hayes and the removal of federal troops from the South. During those 10 or 15 years, a president was assassinated, another president was impeached, almost removed from office. There were three constitutional amendments ratified slavery was banned and black men got the right to vote. It was also a time of horrific ongoing political violence as white people resisted those changes. I want to start by showing you a six minute video from the Equal Justice Initiative, which they released after George Floyd's murder. I think it does a good job contextualizing what was accomplished during Reconstruction and the awful pushback by white people who were desperate to hold on to what they had. Sorry, I think I forgot to enable content. It worked beautifully yesterday and the day before when I practiced.
2: After two and a half centuries of enslavement in the United States where black people were tortured, abused, sexually assaulted, killed, and subjected to forced labor, emancipation finally came at the end of the Civil War with the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Most formerly enslaved people in the United States were remarkably willing to live peacefully with those who had held them in bondage despite the violence they had suffered and the degradation they endured. Emancipated Black people put aside their enslavement and embraced education, hard work, faith, and citizenship. This period called Reconstruction held great hope for America, and Black Americans in particular. But the Reconstruction era's initial hope for progress gave way to devastating, deadly violence. Between 1865 and 1876, thousands of Black women, men, and children were attacked killed, and terrorized by white people who were shielded from arrest and prosecution. During the Memphis massacre of 1866, white mobs indiscriminately beat, robbed, tortured, shot, raped, and killed black women, men, and children. In the course of three days, 90 black homes were destroyed and all black schools and churches were burned to the ground. Black residents were stripped of their belongings and forced to flee into the woods. There was no criminal prosecution against the white instigators of the Memphis massacre, one of hundreds of such incidents during this period. The surge of anti black violence prompted Congress to approve the first reconstruction act in February 1867 to ensure that black people's equality would be reinforced in 1868 the 14th amendment declared all persons born in the country were citizens regardless of race and thus entitled to privileges of citizenship, due process and equal protection. Over 80% of eligible black men registered to vote, schools for black children became a priority and courageous black leaders overcame enormous obstacles to win elections to public office. This triggered a violent backlash from those within the white community who could not accept black equality. In Opelousas, Louisiana in September, 1868, White citizens terrorized the community to suppress black voter turnout in the upcoming election. White mobs roamed the countryside for several weeks targeting black citizens and their white allies, murdering an estimated 200 people. Other massacres of hundreds of black people took place in New Orleans, Colfax, and parishes throughout Louisiana. Violence spread from Texas to North Carolina where white mobs sought to intimidate and deprive black people of their rights. Despite being continuously terrorized by their former enslavers, the black community mobilized throughout the South by organizing meetings, parades, and petitions calling for the implementation of their legal and political rights, including the right to vote. In 1870, the United States ratified the 15th Amendment, explicitly prohibiting racial discrimination in voting. But still, most white people refused to accept black citizenship in both the North and the South there was tremendous resistance to the idea of Black equality. On October 10, 1871, African-American activist and Union Army veteran Octavius Cato left the Philadelphia Pennsylvania School where he served as a teacher and administrator and headed to the polls to cast his ballot in the city's mayoral election. Mr. Cato successfully cast his vote but on his way home from the polls he was assassinated by Frank Kelly who had ties to white supremacist party leaders and who was later acquitted by an all white jury. Being attacked or killed on an election day was a common reality for black citizens. During reconstruction, an estimated 2000 black men served in elected office from local and state positions all the way up to Congress, but increased political participation came at a cost of increased white violence against the black community. In Vicksburg, Mississippi in December 1874, where black people gathered to protest the removal of their elected black sheriff from office, white mobs attacked and killed at least 50 of them. And then in 1877, just 12 years after emancipation, the meager progress that was made towards securing equal rights for black citizens was abandoned when political compromise with Confederate holdouts resulted in the removal of the last federal troops from the South. The commitment to abolish chattel slavery was not accompanied by a commitment to equal rights or equal protection for African-Americans. And the hope of Reconstruction quickly became a nightmare of unparalleled violence and oppression. It was during Reconstruction that a century-long era of racial hierarchy, lynching, white supremacy, and bigotry was established, an era from which the nation has yet to recover. One and a half centuries after the Emancipation Declaration, racial injustice persists in America. EJI presents this report on the tragic period of reconstruction to describe its implications for the issues we face today. We believe our nation has failed to acknowledge our history of racial terror and that we must commit to a new era of truth telling, followed by meaningful efforts to repair and remedy the continuing legacy of racial injustice.
1: So my goal tonight is to try and touch on a smorgasbord of reconstruction topics I think an Arkansan should know something about in the hopes that you'll leave with at least the notion that reconstruction, while it wasn't perfect, it accomplished more than it might have done and the result was a nation that was almost unimaginably different from the slaveholding nation we started the 1860s with. The United States faced a challenge as the Civil War ended. How do we reintegrate the rebelling states into the nation and how do we do this while abolishing slavery. Some of what you hear tonight might sound familiar to you. It might sound like the civil rights movement of the 1960s, or it might sound like what's happening right now. The civil rights movement era is in fact called by some historians, the second reconstruction. And some are suggesting that we're in the middle of the third reconstruction of the United States right now. I wanna start by really looking at this drawing. It was published in Harper's Weekly in May, 1866, a year after the war officially ended for most white folks. It shows United States colored troops returning to Little Rock. We see here black men in uniform. They're carrying guns. They're greeting their families. They're in a very public area. It's in front of what we now call the old state house. If there's any white people, they've been shoved to one side possible this man on the horse is white, but he is not the focus. These Union soldiers may have been in New Mexico or out West fighting Indians, or they may have been trying to keep the peace in New Orleans, but they're back now in Arkansas. Some of them are non-commissioned officers. We can see the stripes on their sleeves. Their families may have been refugeeing in Little Rock. Many of them probably came from Western Arkansas. I know that thousands and thousands of black and white Union families were sent by steamboat to Little Rock, and by wagon train to Kansas as they kept coming into Fort Smith. Countryside was really emptied at the end of the Civil War and destroyed. But these African-Americans are doing something they couldn't have dreamed of doing in 1856. They're carrying guns, they're celebrating family and freedom. And of course, this made white folks uncomfortable. There was something similar happening here in Fort Smith. In 1867, Austin Thomas is here in Fort Smith. He's a veteran of the United States Army. He was born in Washington County, Kentucky about 1819 and somehow he was in Little Rock in September 1863 when he enlisted in what became the 57th United States Colored Infantry. He gave his occupation as minister at a time when most men and certainly most black men in the South identified as farmers upon enlistment. He was discharged in April 1866 having been to New Mexico to fight Indians. He was literate, although I don't know where he learned to read. By April, 1867, Reverend Thomas was a teacher in a Freedmen's Bureau school here in Fort Smith. Here's a copy of one of his roles. You can also see down here that he had sort of a wiseacre for superintendent. I believe he was the first black minister of what is now First Missionary Baptist Church in Fort Smith. And he was a delegate to the April 1867 Union Republican Convention in Little Rock. Although he sent a white man, Reverend Francis Springer in his place. So Reverend Thomas was in Fort Smith in 1867, teaching other black people to read and write, preaching in his own church, elected delegate to an integrated political convention, sending a white guy in his stead. He couldn't have done any of this in 1857. And why now? because of reconstruction. Now Indian country complicates things in Fort Smith. We tend to forget about the West and look East for civil war, but it's right here, including across the river. Most of the tribes in Indian territory had factions who joined the Confederate States in fighting against the union. They had come from Southern lands on their trek West and as part of becoming civilized, they had acquired slaves. I really can't spend the time on this topic that it deserves, but the United States also had to work out what to do with the Indian nations and their enslaved people. That added a whole other layer of problems in Fort Smith. Francis Springer was the post chaplain in Fort Smith, and then the director of the Freedmen's Bureau after the war, and he wrote a lot of monthly reports on what was going on in Fort Smith from a humanitarian perspective. He was in charge of the Freedmen's schools And as a chaplain, he could and did marry people of color. We'll hear a little from him later. I do want to mention that the first post chaplain of Fort Smith was Reverend John Sandals. You might recognize his name because he was the first pastor at St. John's Episcopal Church, the host of tonight's Mind Stretchers program. Sandals though was chaplain while the Confederates controlled Fort Smith. I'm gonna now return to the bigger picture now that you've met some of the characters. I've organized my talk around three themes. How the government and politics changed, how society changed, and how the economy and labor relations changed in those 15 years from 1863 to 1877. These themes overlap and oftentimes the same folks are involved in all of them. This sort of rehabilitation had not been done before and it wasn't clear how it was going to work. Now, reconstruction is kind of like the Marshall Plan for the South, except this United States has to rebuild itself, the society, the economy, the government, and there wasn't enough money to do a good job of it. One question was whether the rebelling states would needed to be treated like territories first, and prove they were worthy of being states. Some of the Southern politicians thought that would be all right. Let them run their own local government. They didn't need the federal government sticking their nose in. The rebuilding started as soon as the Union army gained control of a region, started first in Louisiana, and this wasn't a small task. The South was destroyed and there was a lot of what you might call hard feelings if you wanted to understate things. But what was reconstruction going to look like? This illustration shows what Thomas Nast thought. Nast was a famous political cartoonist from New York, so this is very much what a white guy was thinking. This was published in January, 1863, just as the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. On the left, we see the horrors of slavery and war. Up here is a fugitive being captured by dogs in the swamps. Here, the Confederate stars and bars are flying while a man is auctioned away from his family. Down here, an enslaved woman is brutally beaten. In the middle and right, we see the present and future down here at the bottom, we see the New Year baby breaking the bonds of, sh- of slavery. In the middle, an African-American family is united. Abraham Lincoln is looking down from the wall. Father's bouncing a baby on his knee. There's a grandma sitting by the stove. A, wife, um, a couple courting behind her. A girl's reading a book and the mom is fixing some tea. To the right, we see what Thomas Nast envisioned for African-Americans. Besides the centrality and stability of family, we see African-Americans in their own homes, sending their children to school, going to church, a wife staying home with her baby, friendly dogs chasing chickens, not people, black men working for wages, and a white man down here on the horse greeting black men in the cotton fields with respect. What we don't see here And maybe Thomas Nast couldn't even imagine it in January, 1863. We don't see black men voting. We see church, school, work, especially manual labor in the cotton fields. Family, sure. Voting, no way. But by January, 1868, white men could imagine black men voting and even being elected. In fact, that turned out to be what Southern Union men saw as likely to save them. Why? Reconstruction. Now what did reconstruction look like here on the ground in Sebastian County? Western Arkansas needed a lot of rebuilding, literally and figuratively. Years of guerrilla warfare had destroyed what infrastructure there was. In 1863, Reverend William Baxter fled Fayetteville for points north. It took him a week to get to Springfield, Missouri. And in that week, he never heard a chicken. It was as he says, a slight circumstance, but one which tells how utter and complete the destruction had been. And there were still nearly two years of war before the Confederate army surrendered. In May, 1865, Reverend Springer, the post chaplain of Fort Smith, described what the area looked like. He'd come to Western Arkansas about the same time Reverend Baxter fled. He wrote, The country is wasted of almost everything essential to housekeeping, wearing apparel, bedding, culinary and tableware, furniture, mechanical tools, implements of husbandry, poultry, sheep, hogs, horses, mules, and cattle are either carried off, consumed by fire, or otherwise destroyed. And then as a still farther cause of poverty and suffering, dwelling houses, barns, stables, garden, orchard, field fences have been torn down or reduced to ashes. These appalling wastes of war impart a tinge of gloom, even to the bright prospects of an immediate cessation of hostilities and the return of peace. And this was about 15 months into Arkansas's reconstruction. What Springer doesn't say is that these appalling wastes of war were not the result of pitched battles between armies, but from guerrilla warfare, attacks on neighbors and on the land itself. The last major battle in Western Arkansas was Prairie Grove in December, 1862, but federal soldiers were regularly ambushed, unionists, both men and women suffered assaults, foot burnings, hangings, Near Frog Bio in Crawford County, a union officer was murdered by soldiers in his own unit. Arkansas union volunteers, the soldiers were serving in state near home, making them and their families targets and then refugees. Thousands and thousands of union families, black and white came to Fort Smith seeking shelter. Now this is a refugee camp in Helena. I should tell you all that to start with, The Union Army had what they saw as a problem. Enslaved people were self-emancipating and flocking by droves to army camps. The problem was, what do you do with them? The army figured out, they characterized them as contraband, which an army is allowed to seize. White people fled to army camps as well, but they were called refugees. In one of Springer's first reports, he refers to refugees and contraband. But after that, it's all refugees. It's as if he came to realize that the women and children coming to Fort Smith were all fleeing the same traumas. But what we see in this picture is something like what you'd see in Fort Smith dozens of little kids, a few women, and probably no men, maybe a couple of taller boys. Most of the men, Black and white, have joined one of the two armies at this point. So, this is what we have to work with a destroyed physical environment and communities which have been torn apart. Now, how do you reconstruct labor? Well, Arkansas's economy before the war depended on cotton and on the labor of enslaved people to make it profitable. As you might imagine, the white elite were hoping for a setup as close to slavery as possible. Black people were not. Although there was initially talk of transferring plantations from white people to black, and the federal government actually owned enough public land in Arkansas that they could have transferred it to black people. And these facts are where the notion of 40 acres and a mule came from. White elites were not a fan of the idea of giving black people that sort of independence. They argued, I suppose they might have believed, that black people just couldn't take care of themselves, let alone their land. And after all, the United States economy, not just the South's economy, depended on cotton. The United States was the leading cotton exporter from 1803 until 1937. So white people had a reason to push black people into cotton production but south southern white people were broke they didn't want to and they couldn't really pay black people wages so they started farming by shares where the landowner rents land to a tenant in exchange for a share of the crop but out of that share the farmer would have to pay back advances for food and clothing and so forth and when bad years came and several did the sharecropper was the one who suffered and because landowners made sure they got paid first, not last. Arkansas had a better reputation for black people than many other southern states. The black population of Arkansas nearly tripled from the 1870s to 1890 due to immigration. Some black people did become landowners, even homesteading to acquire free land from the Arkansas from the federal government. The problem, though, was that even free land's not really free. You need access to tools and seed and a community to help you get started, and there was no government plan for that. Now, the government also worked at reconstructing the economy, but always with compromises. The federal government held hearings of the Southern Claims Commission to reimburse loyal Southerners for their losses during the Civil War. Although they didn't give every freed person 40 acres and a mule, Congress tried to put in some protections for homesteading in Arkansas and other Southern states so that black people would get a shot at federal land before disloyal white people did. Arkansas built, went from 60 miles of railroad before the war to 600 miles. Black and white kids got their first chance at public schools. Black literacy skyrocketed from around 5% in 1863 to 20% in 1870 to 70% in 1910. But railroads and schools were state funded and Arkansas was a state whose tax base had been decimated. Not only were land and buildings destroyed but half the state's property value disappeared in January, 1863 when slaves became people. Money was scarce and the people who had money didn't want to use it to grow Arkansas's economy. Now, Reverend Thomas taught at one of Springer's Freedmen's schools in Sebastian County. He could now do what in public what he had probably been doing in secret, teach black people how to read. And he could be paid for it. He could preach in public without fear of breaking laws. The white Baptist preacher had gone to Texas along with most of his white flock. So when they came back after the war ended there was some negotiating to be done. The Episcopal priest John Sandals also left Fort Smith when the Confederate army left. He then quit the army and refugeed in Louisiana. Sandals came back after the war too. And then we get to what Thomas Nast expected, the changes to society when families aren't owned by other people. These changes scared a lot of white people. They worried about things like what if a black man wants to marry into my family? What if the black people leave my crops in the fields? What if they talk bad about me? What if they decide to become subsistence farmers instead of raising cotton on my land? It's mostly like, how are having free black people going to hurt me? Historian David Blight, when he talks about reconstruction, says that to every revolution, there is an equal and opposite counter revolution. Even these basic changes didn't come easily and they didn't come without violence. Now this image is from June 1866 in Vicksburg, Mississippi. We can imagine a similar scene in March of that year in Fort Smith when Reverend Springer married Mary Ann Lewis and John Washington. Washington chose his own last name. I don't know whether it was after his father's or that of the father of the nation. But like Austin Thomas, he enlisted the 57th United States color troops although they were in different companies. John was apparently owned by a doctor when he lived in Jackson Ford, And I suspect he gained some skills during that time. For six months after he enlisted, he was working in hospitals in surge- with surgeons. Eventually, he was assigned to the hospital- Union Hospital in Fort Smith, which is probably where he and Mary Ann Lewis met. Mary Ann Lewis was probably a Choctaw or maybe a Creek enslaved person before she and her family refugeed to Fort Smith. In May 1866, just two and a half months after they married, John died of smallpox, which was itself typical of a soldier's experience. More died of disease than of battle wounds. Mary Ann drew his pension. Another thing you can't imagine doing in 1856, an African-American woman being paid by the federal government for her husband's work. Why? Reconstruction. Now turning more specifically to the government, Lincoln started reconstructing states with Louisiana in 1863 and Arkansas soon followed. His last speech suggested that some black men should be allowed to vote. And John Wilkes Booth was in the crowd to hear that. Many speculate that that was the last straw for Booth. As the Civil War ended, white men in the seceding states were expecting a harsh period of punishment and atonement. Instead, Instead, Johnson became president. He was not actually a Republican, but he was sort of a unity vice president. He took a hands-off approach to Reconstruction, pardoning Confederate leaders willy-nilly. And so long as enslaved people were not literally re-enslaved, he'd let the seceded seceded states do whatever they wanted. This did not go well for African-Americans, as you might expect. And it actually upset Northerners who Maybe hadn't exactly decided what the right outcome was for the Civil War, but they were pretty sure that bloody attacks on black people was not what they had in mind. This time was called presidential reconstruction. Congress was not initially in session, and once they came back, they didn't have enough votes to override Johnson's vetoes. So Johnson was able to spend a year and a half undoing what the Union Army had done. But in late 1866, Congressional elections meant the Republicans had control of Congress and they had had enough, at least for now, and pushed back. It started a time called Congressional Reconstruction. They passed the first Civil Rights Act over Johnson's veto, the first presidential veto ever to be overridden. Congress got two constitutional amendments out to the states, and the seceded states went back under military rule. Reconstruction is generally considered to be over for the nation when Hayes takes office in March 1877 in the trade off. The presidential election was challenged, I would not get into the details, but they there were state, three states were up in the air as to who won, although it was clear the Democrat won the popular vote. The Democrats and Republicans struck a deal Republican president in exchange for getting the feds out of the South. Republicans basically agreed to leave the South to the white elites, that freed them up to do other things like roads. It was just basically infrastructure week. Let's back up and talk about who the Republicans were in the South. They were a motley group, united in their desire to be part of something different, but with many ideas about what that different thing was going to be. And they were a post-Civil War phenomenon. Carpetbaggers were for somewhere else. My great aunt Blanche would have called them Yankees, or maybe she would have said, damn Yankees, but she would have lowered her voice. Southerners were initially excited to hear see carpetbaggers. They were here for economic development and they had money to spend. Many of them came to the South as soldiers. Scalawags were white Southerners who were aligned with the Union. Maybe they had joined the Union Army during the war, or they were too old to fight, Or maybe they saw an opportunity now to take advantage of revolution. They mostly didn't have money, at least for the ones we know about something about here in Fort Smith. They were lower to middle class white people and most definitely not the white elites who were in charge of government before the war. And then we have African-Americans. In Arkansas, we know that nearly all black people who lived here before the war were enslaved. And we also know that most black men who were elected in Arkansas after the war were former slaves. This is partly because in 1859, Arkansas passed a law to expel free black people. However, there were at least two free persons of color living in Fort Smith who didn't leave. They were here in 1860, and they were in fact living with families of future scalawags, white men who were going to identify as radical Republicans, which I think is really interesting. I think that both black people in Fort Smith belonged to the Creek Nation, so they may have seen Fort Smith as more welcoming than their home nation. Also recall that Mary Ann Washington was probably either a Choctaw or Creek Freedwoman. Now, Now African Americans in Arkansas were aware that they had a lot at stake and they needed a seat at the table, and they worked hard to get that seat. I said earlier that Arkansas's reconstruction started in 1863. I didn't misspeak. Lincoln's idea was to work towards bringing seceded states back into the Union as soon as his army had enough control. By late 1863, the Union army had tenuous control of bits and pieces of urban Arkansas. They never had too much control outside the urban areas, but Lincoln proposed a path back into the Union for the rebel states and the path began with finding enough white men to take a, loath, a oath of loyalty to the United States, enough to equal 10% of the voters in the 1860 election. In Arkansas, 10% conveniently matched up with the 10,000 white men who enlisted in the Union Army from Arkansas. This was the most of any seceded state, that 10% could then vote on a new state constitution. With pre-war politicians not allowed to vote, let alone hold office, there were opportunities for white unionists seeking a chance kind of a vacuum to be filled. But the 1864 constitution looked pretty much like the one Arkansas put in place when it became a state in 1836. It did ban slavery and men who weren't loyal to the United States couldn't vote. Delegates from about half the state voted to put this constitution in place. In 1866, the Arkansas Supreme Court voided the ban on disloyal voting and the political elite The men who had all gone to the side of the Confederacy regained power, or as the Republican Governor Murphy put it, bitter enemies of the Union were back in politics. They did their best to put things back the way they were before the war, including committing 10% of the state budget to supporting Confederate soldiers, everything from pensions to artificial legs. Now, this reversion presented a problem to white Unionists in the state or maybe more than one problem. One problem was that they liked being in charge. Another problem was they did not like confederates pretending the war had never happened. A third problem for some of the white unionists is that they thought black people deserved better or that they might be allies for white unionists. So they started thinking about something that was once unthinkable, black suffrage. Suffrage meaning voting. Between August 1866 and November 1866, Confederate men were not just sitting in Little Rock rejoicing in their regained power. Instead, they were killing Union white men and freed people. There were at least 52 unpunished murders of black people and probably more like 100 in Arkansas. Even before August, white men were murdering black people. Near Pine Bluff in March 1866, 24 black men, women and children were reportedly found dead hanging from trees. So Union men wanted to do something. And one group of them called a statewide Republican convention, or as the Van Buren put it, a disunion convention in December 1866. This statewide convention was here in Fort Smith. The lead organizer was the editor of the only radical newspaper in Arkansas the Fort Smith New Era. Conservative papers like the one in Van Buren accused the the convention of treason while the convention accused President Johnson of treason. Contrary to this headline, which says, couldn't go Negro suffrage, wool stuck to their teeth. The convention actually passed a resolution in support of black suffrage, but two delegates, including one from Sebastian County, quit the convention over it. The state, this statewide Republican convention elected a committee to go to Washington DC to lobby Congress in favor of black suffrage. The state legislature, which was filled with Confederates also sent a committee to Washington. It, they got there ahead of the Repo- radical Republicans in early January. They lobbied Congress and had dinner with most of Johnson's cabinet. But the word that they heard was that they had to pass the 14th amendment, which is birthright citizenship before they could even think about being admitted back into the union. But this December convention was not the end of it. The delegates who walked out called their own local convention in Van Buren in February, and followed up with an April statewide convention in Little Rock. Already the conservative unionists and radicals were at odds over what reconstruction in Arkansas was going to look like. But things at the national level were moving fast. By the time April 1867 rolled around, The conservative unionists had come around to the radical way of thinking. The white unionists agreed that black men needed the vote if they were gonna get their way in Arkansas and if they were gonna get back into the union. But this April 1867 convention was even more of a change than the December convention. Three black men were chosen as delegates and one of them was from Fort Smith. It's our friend, Austin Thomas. Now, Reverend Thomas didn't go to Little Rock. He was represented by proxy of our friend, Reverend Springer. The next step was to call for another constitutional convention, one where black men would be guaranteed the right to vote. This call came in November, 1867 and black men could vote on these issues. Now, my great-great-grandmother's uncle, Moses Bell, was on the Republican ticket as a proposed delegate from Sebastian County. And according to the Fort Smith New Era, many of the black men voted for the Constitutional Convention but refused to vote for Moses Bell. I don't know why, I haven't figured that out from the record, but this is part of the challenge of having a big tent. Not everybody agrees with everything and everyone. By spring 1868 in Arkansas, nearly 67,000 men had registered to vote including 22,000 African-Americans. And in March, they passed a new constitution, which enfranchised Black men and disfranchised white Confederates again. And the Ku Klux Klan appeared in Arkansas shortly thereafter, bringing threats and violence with them. While Fort Smith didn't end up under martial law, Republican Governor Powell Clayton put 10 counties under martial law and effectively shut down Klan violence. But not before hundreds more people were killed in Arkansas. So in 1868 The first black men were elected to office in Arkansas, including to the state legislature, which got right to work. They passed bills to fund public schools. They created the land grant university, which is now the University of Arkansas. Fayetteville. They funded railroads and highways. They passed a law to protect tenant farmers. They also formed a state militia and banned night Riders. Dealing with night Riders was important. White supremacists was not, were not going down without a five, literally. After they got pushed out in the March 1868 elections and they realized that black men were getting the vote, they stepped up what sometimes euphemistically called extra legal activities. In this case, they were murdering people. As Governor Clayton reported to the Congress in Arkansas, some 400 people were killed in political violence between March 1868 when the new constitution was passed and November 1868 when the presidential election was held. Clayton's state militia was made up of former federal soldiers, black and white, which well, it did shut down the Ku Kluxers for a while, but let's just say the white supremacists were not exactly happy about black soldiers telling them what to do. From Monticello, W.M. Harrison reported violence against black preachers on the eve of the 1868 presidential elections. He said that the Klan cannot and do not expect peace. Their object is war. Terror reigns here. I am not terrified, but think it probable that I shall be assassinated in a few days. I shall die a Republican. I pray you send us at least 10 or 15 soldiers. Arkansas began reconstruction earlier than most states, but also ended it earlier. In 1873, Arkansas gave Confederates the right to vote back. It was the last state to do so, but it was definitely the beginning of the end. That big tent Republican party was always filled with fragile alliances and full of splits, but the Brooks-Baxter War of spring 1874 was the oddest. To quote the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, the Brooks-Baxter War was an armed conflict between the supporters of two rivals for the governorship, Joseph Brooks and Elisha Baxter. Brooks was a carpetbagger, Baxter was a scalawag, Both had been Republicans and their platforms were similar. There was litigation over who won the race and then the fight became physical. Quoting again, the encyclopedia, the two governors had earlier stated their intention to hold on to their office even if it required the shedding of blood. Blood was shed. 200 men were killed across the state before President Grant's administration declared Baxter the legal governor. Even in Fort Smith, Editors of competing Republican newspapers battled it out, throwing brickbats at each other. While Republicans fought over fragments of power, the Democrats took over Arkansas. And the first thing they did was pitch out the 1868 Constitution. And with it, they threw out most of the power of the governor and other elected officials and wrote in a lot of details to limit the government's power, especially the executive branch. We're still dealing with this 1874 Constitution today. However, just because the Democrats regained power didn't mean that black men left office or quit voting immediately. The last black man in the state legislature was there in 1893. Admittedly, after that, there was a drought of black elected officials for 80 years. But black men weren't just voting and being elected to office, they were hosting political conventions for black and white people. Here's one in Fort Smith in 1870. The convention is hosted by Reverend Thomas's church, although he had died in April of that year. Um, Granville Riles was later moved to Little Rock where he was elected to the legislature in 1883. He was a minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and went to Indian territory to be a missionary there. Backing up a little bit in time, This illustration is from 1870, just after the 15th Amendment was passed, which is black suffrage. This one is just packed full of hope and expectation. In the center, there's a parade with African-Americans and whites. We can see in the vignettes at the corners, men who are supporters of rights for African-Americans, including Grant at top left, Lincoln at top right, Frederick Douglass in the middle. I think the documents are super interesting We've got the Bible, the Emancipation Proclamation, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the labels of the activities going clockwise from the top right. We till our own fields. We will protect our country as it defends our rights. Freedom unites the family circle. The holy ordinances of religion are free our representatives in the national legislature, for there was a senator and two US representatives. The ballot box is open to us. Liberty protects the marriage altar. Education will prove the equality of the races. And these men in Mason garb unite in the bonds of fellowship with the whole human race. But unfortunately the counter revolution was right there. This political cartoon was also drawn by Thomas Nast, but in 1876, after the compromise was made, which took the federal soldiers out of the South, it was captioned, is this a Republican form of government? Is this protecting life, liberty, or property? Is this equal protection of the law? Of course, the counter-revolution was horrific, Political violence was intended to ensure that white supremacy was entrenched in the United States. But I want to close by telling you a little bit more about Mary Ann Lewis. Like Paul Harvey, I wanna tell you the rest of the story. She and John Washington were married by Reverend Springer in spring 1866. After John Washington died from smallpox, she remarried twice and divorced twice, decisions she couldn't have made before Reconstruction. Her representative in Congress, in Congress y'all, wrote to the Pension Bureau to check on the status of her pension application. Can you even imagine an enslaved person having a congressional representative? They were literally written out of the constitution. She owned a lot in the Fishback edition of Fort Smith. She went from being property to owning property. At least three of her children, Ella, Cash and Lucille went to high school which practically nobody in Arkansas could have done white or black before 1860. Two of her daughters taught school. Her son-in-law was a physician and why? Because of reconstruction. Her daughter Ella Green and her husband Henry Clay Yerger founded the African-American High School in Hope. It was eventually named for Mr. Yerger, the Henry Clay Yerger High School. Her son Cash Clarity, Cassius Clay Clardy. She named him for an abolitionist from Kentucky. Cash moved to Philadelphia, where he was a brick mason. Her daughter, Lucille Clardy, also became a high school teacher. She taught at Lincoln School here in Fort Smith and at the Jurger High School in Hope. Lucille had four years college. Lucille's son, Herman Perry Bailey, retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Army. He was a mathematics professor. Herman Bailey's son got a master's degree in Harvard. Let's talk especially about Mary Ann's great-grandson Benjamin Yerger. He was born in 1930, just four years after she died. He graduated from Philander Smith College. He was the first African-American admitted to UAMS, although he elected not to go. Dr. Yerger graduated from Henry Clay Yerger High School in Hope, He was the first African American to work at the Chevron Research Laboratory. Inspired by a Malcolm X speech, he went into education. As part of the War on Poverty, he joined the Job Corps. He taught science, math, and history at a junior high. Then he went to work at Merritt College in Oakland in 1968, where he was a liaison with the Black Panther Party and Students for a Democratic Society. And he was involved in making Merritt College the site of this country's first organized Department of Black Studies. He became a Dean at what is now Berkeley City College. His obituary reports that after retirement, Ben returned to his lifelong passion of studying classical piano. Imagine the changes made possible by reconstruction and by African-Americans pushing for more. The doctors, teachers, brick masons, people who play classical music for fun, and the hope that would not have existed without reconstruction. Now we can pause for questions. Thank you for sticking with me.